And if you would open your Bibles to Acts chapter 14, we'll be reading tonight verses 8 through 18 and looking at verses 14 through 18. Again, this is the Lord's word recording the history of his dealing, the Spirit's work, uh, as the church is now expanding and the witness of the gospel is going forward. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. Amen. Would you bow with me and let's seek the Lord's blessing. Again, our Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the hymns of praise, the truth that is contained in these uh, hymns that we have sung and how they remind us and how they are a blessing to us as they speak to us the truth. We come now, as we have just sung, asking Lord, that you would come and be present with us by your spirit, that you would help us, and that through the, these means of grace, especially now through this word preached, we ask, O oh Lord, that you would strengthen and encourage your people. Help us, O oh Lord, to see that we are part of something so much bigger than just our temporary well-being. We ask that we would not lose sight of that to which you have called us. Bless us now, we pray. Bless your people. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. As we began to look at this passage uh, last week, as with their missionary journey so far, the apostles, and remember this is a term that is applied broadly and generally to Barnabas and Paul. Here they had been set apart by the Holy Spirit at the beginning of chapter 13, and they were sent out by the church in Antioch to be witnesses of the Lord. This is considered the first missionary journey. They have traveled from Antioch to Seleucia to Cyprus. In the cities of Salamis and Paphos, they preached. From Cyprus, they went to Perga and Pamphylia. From Perga to Pisidian Antioch. Pisidian Antioch to Iconium and from Iconium to the cities of Lyconia, those being Lystra, Derbe, and the surrounding region. In each place that they have gone, they have preached the gospel the good news that God has fulfilled his promise. Again, remember, taking just a couple of verses from Paul's sermon in Acts 13, he says, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. 
Remember, the gospel is about what God has done for the sinner. It's never about what the sinner is doing for God. It's always what God has done for the sinner. He says in in verse 39, wrapping up or closing up that, that sermon, that through him, that is through Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Again, Luke records again and again both the wonderful and the wretched responses to the word being preached from among the Jews and the Gentiles, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And yet, for as many as the Lord appointed to believe, we see that there were many that weren't appointed to believe, and there's a wretched response. We see this common reaction to the gospel message and to those who carry it, and the common reaction, the common response was persecution. And so we're making this case that the Bible, as the Bible and the gospel are preached, we see that the Lord is doing his, he's fulfilling, unfolding his will. He's saving some and and others are not being saved. To the man whose heart was once darkened and the spirit of God comes upon him and enlivens his heart, we call this effectual calling, we see that he's given a new will. He's given new ears. He's given eyes that see and ears that hear and a heart that says, I believe, I believe this. I can tell you as a child growing up in the church, I heard the gospel all the time, but I didn't hear the gospel until I was about 14, I think it was. And I rang like thunder. I couldn't believe it. All my life I'd heard this and I'd never heard it. What was the difference? It's the work of the spirit of God enlivening a person and bringing him from death to life. And so we see here that there's this common reaction to the gospel that was preached, uh, a reaction on the part of those who didn't believe, and it was persecution due to, uh, to uh, jealousy at the overwhelming success of the gospel. The non-believing Jews stirred up and do so again in chapter 14, and will do so again in verse 19 in a couple of weeks when we return to this passage Uh, We will see that the Jews come. Uh, We are told Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul, (laughs) dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. I laugh because it's such a difference of opinion. At one moment, they're wanting to offer sacrifices. I don't know what the Jews said, but they were sure effective in turning the hearts and minds of the people in Lystra against the apostle. Persecution's purpose is meant to shut down, to drive away the gospel witness, to cancel out or to neutralize its effectiveness. Listen to what Jesus warned in the the parable of the soils. He says in Matthew 13, 20 and 21, the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary, and when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. That's what persecution does. John would write um, to the church in Smyrna, or to the angel of the church of Smyrna, where the, the church is given this message, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life again. Prison and tribulation and persecution tends to make people run away. The message, the encouragement was don't. 
stay faithful unto death. <clears throat> Persecution uh, hinders the advance of the kingdom. That's its design. It is, however, not always persecution that is used to cancel or silence the gospel, but it might also be praise and adulation, something we see in the American church. We have to keep people happy. We don't want to drive people away from the church because we need their money. And so we got to quit saying things that are going to upset them. And here, here the apostles have come and, and, and they have to do something that is very difficult, I would imagine. Again, remember, they've gone to Lystra. And notice, they do not go to a synagogue as in previous places. They are not in a place where there are Jews, but a place where there is a diversity of Gentiles, a diversity of pagans. The Gospel of Moses has no, not salted this area yet. In verses 8 through 10, and I say this by way of reminder, uh, Luke records for us a very profound event, the preaching of the gospel, which was accompanied by a very powerful miracle, which attested to the truthfulness of the word preached, that of Jesus Christ having come into the world to undo the effects of sin far as the curse is found. The lame man is not only healed of the problem with his feet, but restored when commanded to stand upright on your feet. Notice he leaped up and began to walk. I would argue that the man is better than good. He is restored. Not just his feet, but his whole body is restored. I don't know how you would otherwise do it unless the Lord powerfully moved. He believed the gospel message. He partook of resurrection power. In truth, Jesus Christ is the one in whom sin and its effects are undone. That's, that's the bottom line of this miracle. This is what the Lord has done. What transpires next, however, is what we find surprising, though perhaps we shouldn't. We find that the Gentiles, with their presuppositions, interpret the profound miracle through their pagan worldview. Instead of hearing and allowing the spoken word that Paul had just preached, the gospel, to define the miracle, they interpret the miracle through the myth and lore of their paganism, so that the miracle is not about what Jesus Christ has just done, but rather... Uh, they would say, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. They completely miss the point of the miracle. They are not listening to the message that is pre uh, preached. Remember, uh, in the background, and commentators seem to be universally um, united on this message, that in that area, in that particular area, there was uh, a myth that Zeus and Hermes uh, had, come to, had come to the region as men and they came looking for hospitality among the people of the area and nobody showed these two gods hospitality except some old couple when asked what can we do for you the old couple said could you turn our meager little house into a temple and can you make us priests in it and so as the story goes uh, Zeus and Hermes did this very thing and the rest of the people who didn't show hospitality had their houses destroyed so Here's this wonderful miracle that has occurred, and people say, the gods have come down among us. With this in the background, they're interpreting what has just happened, regardless of what Paul has said, and then the attention he has placed upon Christ. They say, no, we don't want that to happen to us again. We want to offer sacrifices to you because our blessing and well-being come from men. You see? 
And so they do this very thing. This miracle is, in their minds, not about grace given to undeserving sinners, which is what reasonably you should have taken away from that miracle. But this miracle becomes about every person who desires blessing and thinks it can be obtained by the works of our hands. Sadly, this mindset has become invasive in the Lord's church today. How so? One, the the idea that you are capable of doing anything that can please the Lord deserving his blessing, that's a problem. Oh, I've got it all going on. I'm I'm all over this one. He's going to be pleased and blessed with what I do. Secondly, we think that the deeds and sacrifices, the things that we do, are deserving of God's blessings. Think of church attendance and tithing, devotions and deeds, everything we do. And we say to ourselves, God surely will be pleased with this, and now he'll bless me. So that your deeds become meritorious. And and you see, friends, it's such a subtle thing that we fall into. That that our deeds and the things I do become meritorious. And they're not done out of a position of gratitude. They're not done out of love for the one who loved you and gave his son for you. I think it's a very subtle evil, and I think it has infiltrated the church. And, And so we have dethroned, in essence the importance and the the singularity of Jesus Christ, and we've exalted men. Um, So here, Paul and Barnabas, who have been repeatedly persecuted, are now to be praised, celebrated, and worshipped. What a temptation. I want to ask you, which would you rather have happen to you? Would you rather have somebody hit you with rocks or drop grapes in your mouth. (laughs) That's kind of a no-brainer. As these men have come from these places, remember, they're constantly, they're just one step ahead of their persecutors. They're wanting to, and Paul, in verse 19, this this time, he doesn't even, it's not grapes, it's rocks. They they actually try to stone the man and kill him. This would be, I I would think, an intense uh, temptation um, and you can imagine that they, they would say with this, Barnabas and Paul, well, I mean, look, consider what's happened before. We can probably work with this very thing, right? We can work with it. Let's, uh, let's not rock the boat. Let's not be hasty. I mean, we could gradually wean them off of us and get them focused on Jesus. I could use my godlike status right now to say, no, listen to this message. And maybe they would listen better. I can imagine in our world, this kind of mindset would be considered wisdom. What would the wise thing be? I'm just tired. I'm tired of so-called wisdom that undermines the word of God. Always always second-guessing what the Lord says and says, you know, it's really wisdom. The better part of wisdom tells you that you shouldn't obey the Bible. You should just lean on your own understanding. What kind of poppycock is that? I can, you can just see it. Some might say that this is friendship evangelism. Let people say and think the wrong things until you earn the right to be heard, then pull the rug out from underneath them, because we all know that's a more charitable way to be. I'm being sarcastic. I su- suspect that this might have been a temptation, but it is not a temptation that there is any hint of Paul or Barnabas buying into it. 
These men are faithful examples of what ministers and all Christians should think. They don't accept the worship of men. Very important. Notice here in 14a, the faithful minister, right? we would say the faithful Christian, grieves when people look to them as opposed to the Lord. The faithful minister grieves when people look to them as opposed to the Lord. Listen, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd. Here were the people in the Lyconian language planning to sacrifice to Barnabas and Paul. By the way, they think Barnabas was called Zeus because of the two, he was the more imposing character. He looked more stern. And they said, Paul, and one commentator I I consulted, he says, I don't know that there's any veracity to this, but rumor has it that Paul was short and fat and bald. And because he did most of the speaking, he wasn't as nice looking as Barnabas. So probably because he was the talker and not as nice looking, we call him Hermes. We don't know that there's any merit to any of these things, but they assigned to Barnabas the, the, the name of Zeus and to Paul Hermes. Um, they're planning to sacrifice to them. And they don't know. It's in the Lyconian language. And there's a, there's a, there's, there's a crowd and there's ruckus going on. And, and, and they are watching what's happening. And they, they think that perhaps maybe it was the lame man had come. Maybe some other person who had been born again under the gospel had come to them. And they tug on the robe and they say, you understand what they're doing? No, tell me. They're getting ready to sacrifice to you. The priest of Zeus has come with the oxen. They've come with garlands. They're getting ready to worship you. And this is when they say, you you can't do this. Um, They hear of these things, and, and they will not stand for it. Remember, Cornelius met Peter and fell at Peter's feet and worshiped him. And Peter said to Cornelius, stand up, I too am just a man. Remember John fell down to worship the angel in in Revelation 19. We're told that he fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Remember what happened uh, concerning Herod in Acts 12. The people kept crying out about Herod, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. Barnabas and Paul are servants of the Lord. They have come to hold up Jesus Christ, to draw eyes, to look upon him, not themselves. Thus, this is their reaction. They tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd. The tearing of the robes was a sign of deep emotional turmoil. We read it in Second uh, Samuel chapter 1 tonight. David, he hears the news of Saul and Jonathan being killed. He tears his robes. He weeps. He wails over these very things. It's a customary method of expressing grief, of also expressing indignation, of abhorrence, of impiety or blasphemy committed in one's presence. This is not right, what you are doing. And what a temptation to the flesh it must have been to allow people to think better of you than you are worthy and to elevate you to the status of a God. They won't have it. What a faithful, what faithful ministers. You will not worship me. They seek to stop it immediately. By their actions, they protest it, but also by their words. They endeavor to correct their fallen and darkened worldview 
which ascribe to men the status of the divine. So notice that these faithful ministers, they grieve, they tear their robes. This is very upsetting. We've come for one purpose, and you're doing now something else. We've come to tell you about Jesus Christ, and you're looking at us as though we are the answer to your prayers. Faithful ministers, secondly, mustn't remain silent and mustn't allow people to remain in their ignorance as far as they can help it. Faithful ministers mustn't remain silent and mustn't allow people to remain in their ignorance as far as they can help it. We read in 14b through 17, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, and preaching the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. See that they protest their action, they tear their robes, and now they reveal why they are in such emotional turmoil. Men are not the source of blessing. No man can be, certainly not a pastor. Understand me. No pastor can satisfy you. And, and, and I've thought of this, that uh, we read in scripture that Amnon loved Tamar. And then after he rapes his half-sister, we are told that he hated her with a, with a hatred that was equal to that of the love with which he had had for her. And it's a, it's a strange phenomenon. A pastor is a servant of the Lord. He's given gifts for, for various things but he's not God. And sometimes people elevate pastors and give them some kind of status that they think uh, that they, they should be given. And then when the pastor disappoints them, they can't stand him anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's true. I will be somebody's idol cure. <laughs> they will, they will um, be challenged in it. Faithful pastors will not allow you to think things of them that you shouldn't think. And so they cry out to the crowds and they say, men, why are you doing these things? Now, it's a rhetorical question. They're not really asking. It is obvious why they are doing it. But it should be obvious that they shouldn't be doing what they're doing. My friend, Satan's goal is not to have you worship Satan. Satan's goal is to keep you from worshiping Jesus Christ. He doesn't care what you worship. Just don't worship Jesus Christ. To have you put your trust in someone, something other than Jesus Christ would be just okay with the devil. We are not and must not be uh, worshipped, looked to for blessing in any ultimate sense or to be hoped in at all. Consider what men are. Um, they say, we are also men of the same nature as you, and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Men are of the same nature as you. We are of the same nature as you, my friends. We put on our robes the same way as you, one head at a time. We have the same nature. You shouldn't worship us or any man because he is a creature just the same as you. Isaiah would write, Stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils, for why should he be esteemed? Man is of the earth, he is a creature. 
The breath of life is in his nostrils. He is made of dust and returns to the dust. His eyes can only see what is in front of his face, his ears what is audibly expressed. His feet can only be in one place at a time. His knowledge is limited to that which is revealed. His abilities, to, uh, his abilities are limited uh, to that which strength or determination allow. He is fallen. He is sinful. He is weak. He has fainting fits. He has bad days. He has moods which are affected by lack of sleep, self-pity, faithlessness, and the amount of lunch meat in the meat drawer in the refrigerator. And we want to put our hope and faith in these people. Stop it. Stop it. Why would you look to any man? Why would you look to any woman to provide ultimate things that they can't provide? They are no different than you. We are also men of the same nature as you. And this is why we preach the gospel. This is why we preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, says Paul. Notice their message. They have come to Lystra to preach the gospel. And understand, it is not the gospel that says God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not the gospel. But um, you're guilty of sin. What are they guilty of at this very point? Idolatry idolatry they're sinners they're dead in their trespasses deserving of wrath under the judgment of God and God in his great love and kindness has given his son to deliver them out from underneath his wrath so that all who believe in him shall be delivered from his judgment which is coming upon this world the gospel is that they might have life anew because of what Christ has done and to what end preaching that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Vain things do not are not the same as the living God. We don't add Jesus to our panoplies of other gods. What do I mean by this? <clears throat> well, I have a really great wife and I have a really great marriage and 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 you know, it's just like heaven on earth being married to her. And I know she would say the same thing. We could say this about our husbands. We could say this about our families, our finances, our careers, our education. And then to them all, we add Jesus. They all take care of me. No, they don't. They don't. These are vain things. These are things that can't make you happy in the ultimate sense. That's why when two people get married and they say, oh, we're so in love and everything's going to be great. One, one Christian counselor heard say it's like two leeches latching onto each other and sucking each other dry because they don't have it to give. You have to look to Christ. You must look to Christ. Turn from these vain things to a living God. They were worshipers of Zeus and Hermes and who knows what else. To be vain is to be devoid of force, truth, success, result, uh, useless, to no purpose. It was a word used of heathen deities and their worship. Listen to what Isaiah would say in Isaiah 44, 9 through 20. And there are a number of passages that we could read concerning vain idols. 
He writes in Isaiah 44, 9 and following, Those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile, and their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know so that they will be put to shame. Who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame. For the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them together be put to shame. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. He also gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. Another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of a man, so that it may sit in a house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image that falls down and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats meat as he roasts the roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha! I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They do not know, nor do they understand, for he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot comprehend. No one recalls, nor is their knowledge or understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire and also have baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and eat it. Then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver himself nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Do you see what happens with idols? They don't deliver. Your idols are empty. They can't deliver you. They can't set you free. They can't wash you of your sin. They can't care, uh, carry you from this life to the next, raise your body from the grave. But God can, through the work of Jesus Christ, the apostles, as they are preaching, are saying to these people, stop looking at us and start looking to Christ. That's what they're doing. That's why we preach the gospel. Because men sit with, with mud smeared over their eyes and they don't see. And the preacher comes and he says, stop looking there and start looking to Christ. That's where life is found. Don't seek for the living one amongst the dead. Why has he not shown himself, they might ask. How, how can you be talking about this living God and and we have not seen him. Who is this living God and what has he done? The God the apostles preach is not vain. That is without force or effect. Paul starts with general revelation. Remember friends he's not speaking to Jews. They don't have Moses. They don't have the Pentateuch. Um, the truth of the scripture is unfamiliar to them. But they are not without a witness of the living God. Listen to this. Romans 1 19 through 20. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. The living God has 
um, made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Here it screams to them. Who is this God that has done all of these things? Explain it. Where does it all come from? It didn't arrive from Zeus or Hermes or Barnabas or myself. He spoke all of these things into existence. All that's in the heavens, the stars, the, the, with their varying degrees, the planets, the moons, galaxies upon galaxies, billions of them, unfathomable in scope and breadth. The earth he has made. And notice the earth, its singularity here, just as an aside, and the seas and all that is in them. Every creature, every animal, every bug, every plant, fish, and bird, and reptile, every human that ever was, is, and will be, he has made them all fearfully and wonderfully. And he's done it by the word of his power. He has spoken all of it into existence out of nothing. Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what was seen was not made out of things which are visible. He is a God of might. That's the one thing you need to understand. But also this, that he is also a God of patience and a God of concern. In the generations, Paul says, in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. Since the time of Noah, he has permitted all the nations but one, Israel, with whom he spoke through his prophets, types, and shadows, he has permitted the nations to go their own ways, to do their own things, to follow myths and folklore and pagan worship. This is what has happened, and he has been patient. This is why Peter says, right, that the Lord is patient. He doesn't desire for any to perish, but for all to come to faith. And so in generations gone by, these religions and these traditions are all old. But old doesn't make them true or right. Well, we've always had a temple outside of the city to Zeus. You don't expect us to give that up. Well, of course I do. <laughs> of course I do. But it's old. So? So is Satan from the garden. You see, friends? Roman Catholicism, it's old with its traditions. Yes, it is. And it's wrong. Gnosticism, every, now and again, we find, hear them finding um, uh, manuscripts of Gnostic origin, and people go, well, it's old. Yes, and it's wrong. It doesn't square with the scriptures. Hinduism is old. Buddhism, they're old. Native American spirituality, these things have been around for generations. So what? God, the living God, has been patient but don't think that his patience equals his approval of those things. He has not left himself without a witness. He clearly has shown himself to you as a God of goodness and kindness. Listen, he is a God of goodness and kindness who bestows blessing upon the undeserving. How do we know this? Listen to this. This is fantastic. In that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Jesus would say in Matthew 5, 43 and 48, he causes his son to rise on the evil uh, and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. My friends, what do we witness? Who is this God? He causes rains to fall gently on the earth. He causes crops to grow. He feeds us and our livestock and he satisfies us and fills our hearts with food 
and gladness. It's Christmas season. And there's a whole lot of unregenerate people who will sit around after the meal on Christmas Day rubbing their tummies saying, man, that was good. And they don't even know to whom they owe thanks. But that's a gift from the Lord. That's his kindness that he sends the rain. Rain that gently comes, not a deluge that wipes away a town. But he sends the gentle rains and he causes the crops to grow and he causes the cattle to get fat and the sale barn to buy our cattle and beef to be in our freezers so that we have things to eat. Even in a fallen world with all of its sadness, sickness, and sorrows, as undeserving as we are, he blesses us to be able to work, to eat, to go to bed with full stomachs, and to sleep soundly, to embrace the spouse of our youth, and to enjoy with gladness all of these good gifts. This God, the living and true God, gives good gifts to evil men, and you are urged to turn from your idols to the Lord himself to turn from the vain things to look to him who not only blesses us with temporal things but my friends will also bless us with life forevermore in his son don't look for fulfillment and life under the sun remember that's the whole theme of Ecclesiastes under the sun everything is a chasing after the wind a vanity of vanities and all is vanities and then he says but above the sun I consider these things, the whole duty, the whole purpose of, of man is to fear God and keep his commandments. Where is meaning found? It's found above the sun, beyond creation, to the one who created all things. This is what these faithful ministers tell the people. And notice, friends, they don't take, nor do they tolerate the praise of men. That would have been an easy path, I promise you. That would have been an easy path, and they don't take it because it's not true. And the faithful minister's concern is pleasing Jesus Christ and not leaving your soul hanging over hell. And that's what these men are to be about. They don't take the praise. They don't tolerate it, but direct them to the Lord as the source and substance of life. And then we read finally, and we're wrapping up with this, verse 18. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. Whew. What a chore. What a chore. They restrained them. They kept them from offering sacrifices to them. They did not take the easy way, um, and they did not leave these people to believe what was false they did not remain silent, but they did the difficult work, did the hard thing to promote the truth of the gospel. Christians who read this mustn't think that persecution is the only thing that can destroy the witness of the gospel. Praise can also destroy the work of the gospel if we don't keep it in check and understand People thank you for the things that you do. Thank you, Tim, for teaching. What does Tim say? Praise God. Praise God. The gifts he gives are the gifts he gives for the benefit of his people. 
I am not the originator, the source of blessing. I'm only a recipient, a servant, just like you. And we point people back to Christ so that the gospel continues to move. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, again for this word, and we thank you for your scriptures, for the example of these dear men who suffered persecution and also had to restrain people from offering sacrifices to them. We are so grateful, Father, for this example of integrity, that they were not in the ministry to benefit themselves. Rather, they were in the ministry to exalt the Lord Jesus. We would ask this, Father, of your people, of your pastors throughout this land, that you would forgive us, Father, when we begin to crowd in on the glory that is due to one And we ask that you would forgive us for these things and make us faithful men and women uh, in your service. We thank you for this evening and pray that your word would roll around in our hearts and minds until you perform and, and conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen.